starts cracking a little bit. I was, uh, there was a game last night, and I was watching it, and uh, it turned out pretty well. So I was screaming and waking up my neighborhood, and uh, anyways. Um, but it's fun because Easter is always a time, there's a lot of tradition surrounding Easter. Uh, we get dressed up. You guys look fantastic. Your kids look well-dressed. Um, you smell great, all of that stuff. And it feels so normal to kind of go to church uh, on Christmas and, and Easter, and this is, this is the time, and, and this is just tradition. And, and, um, and it feels better than, than last year where we did 100% online for this thing. It feels good to be like sort of normative. We're like taking steps out, and we've seen a lot of faces here that haven't been here for a while, so that's, that's always good. And, and that's awesome. And the thing about Easter, too, is every year um, we try, you know, the story doesn't change, right? And the tomb's always empty. Um, and you, you come expecting a, a talk on, on it would be weird for me to go, all right, we're going to be in uh, Lamentations today, right? Uh, it's like a weird, a weird, uh, weird thing. So you, you know the story to expect, and then you know that uh, every time that we're here, we're just trying to answer a question that is, what do we do? Uh, how do we make sense? And what does the death, burial, and resurrection of a Jewish rabbi a long time ago have to do with uh, me? This is, no matter what church you go to on Easter Sunday, um, this is probably a question that is like, you know, we know the topic, but what does this have to do with me? And even if you're not religious, this is like, okay, this is a legit valid question. Um, when, when something happens either a long time ago or far away or, you know, a part of a religion that I don't personally identify with, uh, what does this have to do with me? Does this fit any of the current problems that I'm facing? Because that's how we do life a lot. We go through life looking at things going, does this help me solve any current problem that I'm having? Does this question help me solve any current problem that I'm having? Because when we go shopping, we sort of do that. Um, we look at a product and it says on the front, hey, this helps you know, solve stress. And we go, hey, I have stress. This is great. Or, or we say, this helps solve some weight loss. And we'll be like, I would love to fit into better jeans, right? Or this, is, this is, you know, helps with hair loss. And we'll be like, hey, I know somebody who struggles with that. So um, I should pick this up for Brian. I think he'd be really appreciative if I, if I got this for him. Um, we, we do this, and then we show up on Easter Sunday, and then this, some version of a story of this is presented. And there's a lot of different ways that a church can present this, right? They can go through the reactions of the disciples post-resurrection. Um, they can go through the expanse of the church. How do you explain the, like the, the growth of the church, if not for people believing uh, not what they, you know, they, the, they said they believe, but for what, something that they saw. We can go through the testimony of women. Um, this whole thing centers around and it's, it is structured up and held up by the testimony of women uh, who in this time, their, women's testimony meant almost nothing in a court of law. Um, so like the significance of the, the, the various means at which this took place or, or uh, Nicodemus and, and uh, Joseph Arimathea and their, their approach of, of the burying of, of, of the body of Jesus and their process. And there's so many different ways to be able to do this. Paul's explanation to the, the churches that he would pastor to of saying, this is central and core. I mean, there's, there's tons of different ways to be able to take this. And every year, somebody like me sits up in, in a stage like this and opens up a Bible like this and begins to talk about the resurrection as if it's something that you need, that it answers some sort of a missing piece uh, in your life. And, we, and it goes something along the lines of for the covering or forgiveness of sin, for the redemption of life. But you like probably didn't walk in the room today feeling like that was a problem that you were actively searching for a solution for. So then what happens is typically it becomes upon me to act like a marketing department to create a scenario where you need this and you don't even know what you need. Let me tell you what you need. And you need this. But that feels opportunity, opportunistic at best. And it's maybe the reason that churches turned you off in the past 
of, I show up and you keep talking about this and I don't feel like I, I really need this, manipulative at worst, right? So instead, I'd like to offer an alternative approach for us in, in, in terms of how are we going to approach a very familiar text, the Easter story, the Easter text, what are we going to do? Instead, instead of going around the lines of, hey, you need this or whatever, let's set that aside for a second and approach it from the safe distance of history. Instead of saying, how should you or I or whatever interpret and apply this, what I want to do is say, how did the early church interpret and apply this? Let's, let's focus, at it from the, focus at it from the distance of history and say, what did they do? What did they, and when I say this, I mean this question. We're not the only ones to deal with this question. What does this death, burial, and resurrection mean to me? Early Christians, the early church had to wrestle with this too. It wasn't easy, clear cut for them to go along with, with this. They're, they're dealing with this. And, and so when we say, what, did, what is this question? How did they answer this question? I know an uh, immediate response would be, well, you'd have to take out a long time ago because you know, they were a lot closer to the resurrection of Jesus than this. But the thing to remember is that we do have, we have four different accounts of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus written by four different authors, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They make up the first four books in the New Testament, also known as the four Gospels. And what we know is that Mark was probably written earliest, and the reason that it's written, we think we know that, is because Matthew and Luke appear to kind of steal some of the material. And then John was probably written last. And what we know about it, too, is that Mark was written no earlier than probably 25, 20, 25 years after the resurrection, and, and John probably no later than 50 or 60 years after the resurrection, meaning there's a long period of time frame at which, uh, in between the, the event of the resurrection and with the material that we have that talks about the resurrection, almost probably 20 years at least, in some cases more. So with that in mind, if that's true, then there's an interpretation kind of element to all of this. In the same way that if I asked you to, before you leave today, would you take out your Connect card and write down a memory of something that happened 20 years ago, how would that be influenced and how, how, how great would those details be and then what kind of would go into the biases that are involved in that? Because I thought about it this week. If you had asked me to write down my experience of watching The Office premiere. Listen, The Office premiered 16 years ago, March 21st of 2005. This is Michael Scott before he got hair plugs. And this is him. And I, rem I vividly remember hosting a watch party at my house for this show. Because I think, if I remember correctly... I watched the trailer for it and thought, I work for somebody like this. I need to watch this show and invite all of my coworkers to come and we'll watch this together and we'll see ourselves in this show. And I remember one of them said, hey, I'm going to be running late. And I said, no worry, I'll try and record it on CDRW for it uh, for you and get it there, which that dates me again. There's no DVR. It was always, anyways. If you ask me to write about this, like no question right now, I would say I loved it. And I knew immediately that it was going to be a smash hit success. No, no question that it was shaped, the, but that kind of a biased reaction would have been shaped by the fact that not only did I watch this live, then I bought the DVDs, right? And then I watched those on repeat, on repeat, on repeat until it came on Netflix. And then I fell asleep to this for years and years and years. And so... I would quote lines back and forth to people. I got immediate adult onset allergies at Jim and Pam's wedding. I remember like watching Michael leave and then the garbage that ensued after that. All of that would have influenced me re recollecting right now what it was like watching this premiere live 
16 years after the fact. I would say, again, I would probably be super positive about this. I, I, I remember it vividly, and I remember loving it and knowing immediately it was going to be you know, material for syndication. It was going to make millions of dollars, and it was going to be the best show on television ever. However, in that moment, I probably thought, what did we just watch? It was so unique with the, like, the documentary-style camera, the silence. I had grown up on laugh tracks. That was the only thing I'd ever known, and now those seem so odd and so weird. But in that moment, it was like, I don't even, I, I don't even know what I just watched. It would take me years to be able to write down how I, how I felt about it, and then again, it would be biased with that. There's an interpretive, t- interpretive process involved in all of that. And that's true for what we see in the gospel stories and gospel narratives as well. I say all of this because Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John did not write down their version of the Easter story events the day after, the week after, the month after, or even the year after it happened. They wrote it after some interpreting had already been taking place. And this doesn't mean that they've lied about what took place or even fabricated events to make it more exciting. It just means that they had already put some effort into understanding what this means to us when they decided to write it down. What this means to us was already a part of their formulation of thought as it entered into scripture, which is the story that we've received. We do not receive it unbiased, we received it biased. So how is it biased? And we've said for the last couple of weeks, we've been talking about this, leading up to this, because this is so important. To understand Easter, you really do need to understand the story of Exodus. That there is something about the early church and these early gospel writers that they, when they saw this event, they are pulling from their own tradition of their story of the Exodus event. The Exodus story for them was the Jewish narrative. It, it's the second book of the Old Testament. It is the, the tradition of where we came from and who we are and what it means to be Israel and what it means to be chosen by God and how we're supposed to live our life and the reason that we do tabernacle or, te- or temple the way that we do it and the sacrificial systems that we do and there's traditions that we kind of evolve in. And so when you see the, in the New Testament the, these, these traditions of these people groups going into this like feast of tabernacles or um, going out and like setting up tents uh, they set up tents. They would go camping. Uh, the whole nation would go camping to try and remember what it was like to be like Israel on the move out of Egypt and into the promised land. They would do Passover, and that would be a meal. That would be a tradition to remind them that night. That Remember when we, when we gathered together and the 10th plague came through, and there was the blood of the lamb that was on the doorpost, and then the angel passed by and it rescued us from us. There was a pa- the passing over of each home that had been marked as, as, as part of Israel. We remember these things. This, is, this was tradition. And, and what is tradition in the end but a community's way of telling its story over time? And we do traditions too to tell our story the way over time. This is what, when we, when we celebrate, we do fireworks for 4th of July. It's a tradition that's trying to remind us of the celebration of the time when we you know, expanded and, and separated ourselves away from England. These are all kinds of traditions. And so for them, their traditions surrounding Exodus would always centralize around a couple of things. Here's what we know. We know that, one, we were slaves in need of rescue. We were slaves for 400 years in an oppressive Egyptian system, and we could not help ourselves. Number two, after a long period of silence, 400 years, God showed up in an unlikely way. 
And third, we were given a promise and the hope of a better future. We were given a promise of a hope and a better future, a land flown with milk and honey, a land that would be truly ours uh, where we would do this. Now, under, under normal circumstances, on a weekend like this, we would have our own traditions. There would be an egg hunt in the lobby or in the kids' rooms for everybody or whatever, or maybe in the parking lot and just spice things up a little bit. That'd be fun. Um, we would probably do, we used to do taco trucks for Easter. That's been a long-standing tradition for us. I'm sorry to disappoint you. We do not have a taco truck today, um, but we, next year we will. We would do communion. A lot of times we do communion. I would say at a time uh, in this service, I would say, all right, we're going to have a few people. They're going to go to the back. They're going to grab some bread and some juice, and you're going to come up to the front. The band's going to play a song, <clears throat> and you're going to dip the bread, you know, all this kind of stuff. And remember when we used to dip bread in a communal juice cup? That was crazy, huh? Wow. <laughs> crazy. Wild living, everybody. Wild. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? If I did that today, we'd have like two people. You know, everybody else would be like, shame, shame. Anyways, um, And I would say the language that I would use would be something like this. Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, stood up in front for the Passover feast. with his. He's going to the normal tradition for all of them, remembering, remembering where we came from, remembering that we were once enslaved in in, in Egypt, remembering that God showed up in an unlikely way and moved us and, and provided an exodus out of this world and into a new one. And he stood up. And instead, he, instead of kind of retelling that story, he kind of retells it, he reprises it in a different way. He breaks the bread and he says, this is my body and this juice is my blood. And he's kind of inserting himself into this story. And it's almost like there's this, this is now, this, this thing that we've known, this has been an echo, but it's something new. And again, this is the New Testament authors giving us this story. They're realizing this 30, 40, 50 years after the fact. We now see what he was doing. He was retelling the story. He was pulling that which we know, but like inserting himself into it. And it's like an echo, but this time it's better. It's like a cover song, but the cover song is like better than the original. It's one of those, we see what he was doing and it's helping us understand how do we make sense? How do we make sense of Jesus's death, burial, and resurrection for us? It's kind of like, a new exodus. It's kind of like a new Passover. When Passover was rescue from slavery and deliverance into something new, we see, we begin to think of Jesus's death in that way. How did they interpret it? They saw it as a new version of this, a new way. And it's not just the gospel writers. Paul, in his letter to the church in Corinth, says this in chapter five, verse seven, for Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival, not with the old the tradition, not with the old leavened bread, uh, with mal- but this time with mal- uh, that one with malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and with truth. What does this death, burial, and resurrection of a Jewish rabbi a long time ago have to do with us? Here's what we know. Here's what they would say. The three things that we know about our original exodus, that we were slaves in need of rescue. This church reinterpret they're looking at the life of Jesus and the death of Jesus and going what does this mean for us there's some sort of a rescue process in place that we were we were lost unto ourselves that there was a breaking free from the powers of sin and death in our life and there was an invitation into something different death un- somehow it unlocked our freedom and by the way, there's a lot of like writings about what that means. You've got like different atonement theories and all kinds of stuff. I don't, I don't want to get into the weeds and all of that, but I'm just saying that for some of them, they go in the same way that Jesus or that, that the Passover kind of signified this rescuing. Jesus' death was a rescuing for us. 
perhaps from ourselves. It was an exhibition of true power. I said this a couple weeks ago, looking at the 10 plagues, these weren't just 10 random plagues. The 10 plagues in the Old Testament in the Exodus story with Pharaoh and Egypt and all that, these were direct counterproductive measures against the gods of the Egyptian sort of religious system. You have a god of locusts. You have a god of the Nile River. You have a god of the sun. Let me, let me, let's blot out the sun. Let's make the river red. Let's show you an exhibition of true power. You think this is powerful. There's, you are dealing with something far greater. When they're going, we saw him die, and then we saw him conquer death. What that means for us is that there's a liberation of true power. We, we, we don't know. We can't define it exactly, but what we know is we experienced true power in that moment like we've never experienced before. And then after long, here's what else we know. Number two, we know that after long periods of silence, God showed up in unlikely ways. And this time they're saying, as we reflect upon the life of Jesus, we realize, yeah, he did some like pretty miraculous things that were pretty like, go tell people, you know, like this, you think this would make news. But when he did it, instead of like broadcasting it for the entire Egyptian world to be able to see and perhaps sway them to be able to let them go. He did it, he healed somebody, and then he would tell this person, don't go and tell anybody. Let's keep this between us. There were miracles that took place, but he kind of subdued them or subverted them a little bit. Instead, when Jesus would talk about the kingdom of heaven, he would liken it to a mustard seed. He would say the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed. It's so infinitesimally small when you put it in the ground, and yet when it grows, it sprouts into something big. How in the world does that take place? Or he would say, it's almost like a woman who's baking her bread and watching that yeast rise. We, we know it works, but at that point in time, they didn't know probably how it worked. We just know from tradition, this is what you do, and then it rises, and then you have bread. And we just trust this in this way. Instead of flashy plagues, perhaps something a little bit more understated would take place. The onset of God's rule would not be marked in this, in this moment. It, it would, reflecting on the time of Jesus, go, it's not necessarily about these public displays of lordly grandeur, but by common happenings of seemingly insignificant things. And then the unique piece about this is, and it's true even for us today, the greater our pool of knowledge becomes, the bigger our telescopes or the bigger our microscopes or the more focused they are or whatever, the more we continue to be amazed at the complexity of that which holds it all together. The more we know, the more we realize we don't really know, right? This, this, is, this is the new way. This is the Jesus way that they're going. Um, he showed up in the midst of silence, in the midst of nothing. And, and again, they had their period of, of silence too, right? They'd come out of exile in Babylon. They're, they're trying to make a name for themselves, trying to rebuild this temple. And then 200 years between the Old Testament and the New Testament, where God's just like, I'm, I didn't, we don't even know if he's there anymore. Is he still listening? Is he still watching? Is he still doing anything? And then all of a sudden, Jesus comes on the scene, and he does some cool stuff, but then he also just talks about how like, this whole, this whole like, way of seeing the kingdom is just in the inner workings of day-to-day, common, everyday life that we take for granted, and there's so many crazy things that are happening this way. It's an unlikely way of showing up. So we're, we're making sense of this in, in, in showing this way. And then, and then finally, we were given a promise and the hope of a better future. What this teaches us, or what this church interpreted uh, in, in highlighting this, is that in the same way that this was an exodus out of the land of Egypt into something new and, and 
and glorious or whatever, the church has said we live with this hope that Jesus said that what you do in this life matters, that there's life beyond this life. We would not normally come to that conclusion just by ourselves. We can hope for that kind of stuff. And, and if, as Christians, we go, we don't have to hope for that. If he says this is how it works, then his resurrection kind of validates his teaching on this. So we believe in a new exodus as well. We believe that life doesn't end with just this life, that there's something beyond this. This is how the new church, this is how the early church begin to interpret this. They liken it to an exodus. They liken it to their old events, to their old traditions, and saying, this is what this means for us. So what does this mean for all of us? You, can get to, you have the freedom to kind of determine this on your own. I'm just telling you what the early church did was go, this is, what it, this is how it feels for us. This is what it looks like for us. Now, what I want to do now is jump into a more common Easter text found in the book of John, John chapter 20. This is post-resurrection. This is Easter morning or the day after. The, uh, the women have already gone up to the tomb to uh, re-embalm the body of Jesus because, you know, you never send it. they sent the guys up to go do this the first time. They're like, we can't let the guys have the embalming job. We need to go fix this, right? Uh, we're going to go up and we're going to fix it. They show up and the tomb's empty. And, and they're, they're frightened at the, the absence of a person. And so they, they begin to come back and they go, the body's gone. We're not exactly sure what happened. And then this is, uh, we're going to pick it up in verse 19. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders. Why the fear of Jewish leaders? Because Jewish leaders had just crucified their teacher, their leader. And then they just thought we might be next, right? Jesus came, stood among them and said, peace be with you. Why is he saying peace be with you? <laughs> because... They watched him die, and then he's standing right next to them. So he's like, hey, everybody, stay calm, right? That's his version of everybody stay calm. It's going to be okay. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. The disciples were overjoyed. They saw the Lord. John's recording this as somebody who's writing from the inside, remembering this moment, saying it felt a lot like those Israelites probably who were walking out of Egypt and into this desert of an uncertain future. We have this guy before us who is our friend. We watched him die, and then he's here, and he's got holes everywhere. Now Thomas, this is verse 24, Thomas also knows Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we've seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. And the church from that point on has given him the name of Doubting Thomas. And he's sort of gotten a bad rap. And we use it in common kind of lingo every once in a while, probably not you, but maybe like my dad and my grandpa. Oh, he's a doubting Thomas, right? This is a doubting, it gets a bad rap. And yet, this is the, if there's one person that I identify most with in this story, it's this guy right here, right? And, and, and perhaps you too, like I'm not gonna go off the word of somebody else. Everybody I've ever known who's died has stayed dead. And so I'm just gonna like continue to believe that until something different shows up. That's what Thomas says here. I can't believe this story. I'm sorry, I really liked him too, but I refuse to kind of fall into this trap. Verse 26. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, and I don't know how this all works, and this is kind of, you got to figure that out for yourself. Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you again. Again, everybody stay calm, right? <clears throat> Verse, same thing. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. In that moment, Thomas is like, I have no other options but to be like, my Lord, my curios, my, 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 in my hierarchy of influence, you're at the top, my Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, 
Because you've seen me, you've believed. And blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now, John knows he has an audience who is reading this. He knows his audience is reading this probably 50, 60, 70 years after the fact. That Jesus has been gone a long time. That the odds of them seeing Jesus resurrected, him showing back up and saying the same thing, everybody stay calm, is not probably going to happen. So John includes this for them and in doing so for us. Because we find ourselves in the exact same boat. We will probably neither, never see with our visible eyes the resurrected Jesus. And yet, instead of being like, we're, that's, we're so unlucky to be here, he flips the script on this and says, oh, the luck. This is this happy or, or blessed, blessed, lucky, makarios, the same word that Matthew uses in chapter five of his kind of story in the Sermon on the Mount when he goes through the Beatitudes, blessed are the meek, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, blessed are those who are poor in spirit. Oh, the happiness and oh, the joy, oh, the luck of those who find themselves in this position. Again, like the irony of this thing. Happy in the luck of those who have not seen and yet have believed. Creating a category for people like us who have the opportunity to believe in an Easter story without having seen the physical body of Jesus who shows up in a room and says, careful, it's okay, I'm fine, I'm fine. It's not that great of a feat, Thomas, that you actually believe this. I'm standing right in front of you. Lucky are the people, blessed are the people, oh, the joy of the people who for, in perpetuity will sit in a room every Easter and hear a story and given the option to believe or to not believe. And lucky are those who may choose to side with this, to respond in the same way and say, my Lord, my God, and live this and begin to interpret what do I, if that's true, then his death and his burial and resurrection validates everything he taught in the gospels. Therefore, I would do well to organize and prioritize my life around the teachings of Jesus and learn what it means to live and to walk in the way that he prescribed, the way that he did it. And he's saying, listen, it's not that hard for you because you saw it. Let me illustrate it in this way. I thought about bringing a painting up here, but I don't even own a painting, so it wouldn't work. Um, But if I brought a painting up here, and it was like a really good painting, and you're like, that's a really good painting. And I'd be like, I painted this. And you'd be like, wow. So impressive. And you begin to ask me questions. What, what medium did you use? Well, I used watercolors because I like watercolors, right? And then I begin to kind of describe all of this. And you say, where did you get your training from? Where did you get your technique? Um, is, was this a commission piece? Is, or where are you going to hang it? All of these questions. I had all of these answers. And then at one point towards the end, I let it slip. Um, man, all I did was, was I, I, wherever the number two appeared, I put blue there. And wherever a number four appeared, that's where the yellow went, right? Your impression of my skill for painting would fall off a cliff in that moment, and rightly so. It should. It's not all that interesting. Oh, you can't see the lines or the numbers because I've painted over them, but they were once there guiding me into this. It's not that hard to do what you did. How impressed more are we when it's like an artist, a true artist, takes a blank canvas with no lines and no numbers and is able to put their art onto that. That's impressive. This is Jesus saying, Thomas, you've connected the dots. You've done this. You're gonna believe, but I've had to spell it out for you. Lucky are the people who don't have any of that and are able to kind of pull ahead with this anyways. 
and sit in a service like today or like last year or any or week in and week out at a, at a service and, and, and realize and, and open up scripture and hear the teachings of Jesus and walk away going, my Lord and my God, my Lord, my God. I may never see it. I may never have all of the tangible proof, but there is something about it that compels me. I realize in my own way, um, I've kind of like been in a spot where I've, I, I've lived like almost as a slave to myself, like um, I've needed help that's beyond myself. I've tried to get my own help or I've tried to be my own solution to my own problems and it just keeps not working out for me. And so I need a savior. I need something beyond this. I, I realize it left to myself, I'm gonna be like a self of self-destruction, right? I need something different. I've lived, and you keep showing up, God, you keep showing up in such unlikely ways. After long periods of silence, like you never really like, let go of me. Like you keep chasing after me. There keeps being something that draws me in. And I realize that it's, it's not in this big, as much as I want the big flashy things, it's in the minutia of the sustaining of life. It's in the relationships that I have. It's in the way that I look at my kids and I realize like that connection, the love between the spouse and whatever. There's like, God, you keep showing up in the common things of life, in the everyday of life. And I live and I hear stories of death and it makes me long for something that this is not the end. I miss somebody. I miss, I, there's, there's, a, there's a disconnect that death causes that makes me feel like that can't be it. That there has to be more. That there needs to be more. I want there so badly to be more. I want that what the, 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 the reality that what I do in this life counts for something. Not that I'm earning your grace. That's not it at all. But like that this is not an accident. That this is purposeful in this way. And when we look at those things and when we reinterpret this... Maybe that causes us to answer that question. What does the life, death, and burial and resurrection of a Jewish rabbi thousands of years ago or a long time ago mean for us? It means a renewal of all of those things. It, re- it means a new, uh, a new Passover, a new exodus for us. In the same way that it meant for the early church, we're making sense of that for us in these three ways, leading us, hopefully, 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 to a spot where in the intimacy of our own minds or in our own hearts or in the drive home or whatever, we would say, my Lord and my God, and my time would be then best spent discerning what it means like or what it looks like to live out the teachings and the way of Jesus and to be a part of a community like this or wherever you come from, some church somewhere, where these things are brought up each week, that new ways, new facets are looked at to be like, what would it look like for you to do this this week? How do we do this? And why is this important? Because his resurrection validates, his resurrection validates this as the best way to do life, that God made himself known. He loved the world so much. He loved it so much that he sent his son to die for us. And what does all that mean? I mean, you can get lost in all that. I get it. I get it. There's, there's a freeing of it. There's an invitation into new life, a new exodus, into something true and better. And so the invitation remains for you and I, not just today, every single day and every single week, an opportunity to say, to look up and say, to some degree, my Lord and my God. Let's pray. Father, our prayer is that every Easter Every, every service, every time that we get together in a community like this and open up your scripture and look at these words and let them kind of and, and deal with the stories and deal with the narratives and deal with the angles at which the authors did it, that it would enlighten something in our lives to realize that we are in a position 
to be able to respond, not because we've been able to see and touch and feel, but respond in faith to a story of, and a message of hope. May, that, may, may the, the realities of, of this, um, this redemption piece, like as, we, as this church kind of interpreted this through this story of Jesus, may that make sense in our life as we go and do this. And it may, may all of the ways that we see you continuing to work, you operating out of the silence and in unique ways, inspire us to live our lives in a way that says, my Lord and may God. And we, may we corporately remain a, a community where that is so central and core to why we continue to get together and discuss this and challenge each other to live this out. Give us the wisdom to know what this looks like in our life and the courage to act on it. In your name, amen. amen.